Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. This episode didn't start out the way it's going to end up. It started out as a Sunday morning quiet time, but now it is Monday morning. I had a little trouble with my voice yesterday, and I brought you back something old. So today we're going to get into what I was going to talk about yesterday, which hopefully will be of some value to you. been hearing from lots of folks that... You know, we had all these plans of drying things up and starting fresh and having this year be the year of the Lord's favor and getting started. And it, sometimes it just, it's hard to get started. Actually, the data all show that something like 85% of New Year's resolutions are abandoned by the second week of January. So we're here getting ready to start the third week of January, right? And if you're having trouble making the changes that you thought you needed to make or, or shrugging off some things that you thought you didn't want to drag into this year, it's not too late to start. We always say, start today. The good news is you can start today. And that's always true because yesterday's gone, man. My friend, it's, it's gone, right? So today's the day. And if God's telling you that he has something in store for you that's different, it's better, it's bigger, then, hey, it's not too late. But today we're going to talk about something I call the gravity of old comforts. We're going to talk a little bit about Eugene Peterson's book, Run With the Horses, one more time. The final chapter of that book, there's a story I want to tell you. And we're going to talk about the idea that, that the Egypt, the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament had a problem of wanting to give up the, the promise that God was calling them to, to go back to Egypt where they had been enslaved for 400 years because they found comfort there. And I want to just talk about that for just a minute in the context of our lives now. And if you're having trouble breaking free of some things in the past and you, and you're, and you really want, or you feel like your heart's calling you, God's calling you, it's time for you to, to change something and make a, make a new plan for the, for a new life that God's calling you to, then this episode might help. There's going to be a song at the very end. We're doing this 21 days of prayer and fasting with our old church in Alabama, Church of the Highlands. And, Yesterday, the prayer service had a song I'd never heard. It's actually been around a couple of years called I Speak Jesus. And this song originally, I think, was written and released by someone named Charity uh, Gale. Charity Gale. I'd never heard of her, but she's a worship leader. has a bunch of songs on YouTube. Great voice. But the version I chose to put on the podcast today is actually from Here Be Lions and Darlene Check. This version for whatever reason, the EQ sounds better to me, and I think it'll it'll be a little easier for you to understand the lyrics. And, and if you don't know this song, I Speak Jesus, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's a great, powerful, powerful worship song, obviously written and inspired by the Holy Spirit and very perfect for the, the lesson that we're going to talk about today in the quiet time. This is my personal Bible time and quiet time this morning. I'm sharing with you uh, some thoughts that have been inspired by Eugene Peterson's book, Around with the Horses, and I think it'll help because, my friend, what we're after is the fact that we can't change our life until we change our mind. And the, and the good news, Lisa tells us every day, is that we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it, and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is, you can start today. 
Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay. I'm a baseball fan. I haven't watched Major League Baseball in a few years after all the the politics and everything got involved in professional sports. It just kind of lost its... It's a passion for me, but I'm a big baseball fan growing up, huge Daryl Strawberry New York Mets fan when I was a kid, and um, I'm and just I'm a baseball fan. I love the the simplicity, but the complexity of the game at the same time. So it's just a lot of a lot of um, strategy and, and a lot of individual decision making and group strategy that turns that game into something really interesting to watch, like a like a chess match involving 18 people at the same time. Anyway, Eugene Peterson had a, a story at the very end of his book, Run, Run with the Horses," that surprised me. I didn't know he was a baseball fan too. And the, the last chapter. Um, of the book was a wonderful, amazing chapter, chapter 16 of the book. He opens with this story about how he used to drive in Baltimore where he lived to Memorial Stadium. Of course, Memorial Stadium is not there anymore. It was um, one of those stadiums like Three Rivers in Pittsburgh that was torn down and replaced with a more modern ballpark, Camden Yards, several years ago now. But but when he wrote this book, he talked about going down to Memorial Stadium to watch the Orioles play baseball. And what he liked about it was, let me just read a little bit what he says. For a couple of hours, I am in a world that is defined by exactly measured lines and precise geometric, geometric patterns. Every motion on the playing field is graceful and poised. Sloppy behavior is not tolerated. Complex physical feats are carried out with immense skill. Errors are instantly detected, and their consequences are immediately experienced. Rule infractions are punished directly. Unruly conduct is banished. The person who refuses to play by the rules is ejected. Outstanding performance is recognized and applauded on the spot. While the game is being played, people of widely divergent temperaments, moral values, religious commitments, and cultural backgrounds agree on a goal and the means for pursuing it. When the game is over, everyone knows who won and who lost. It's a world from which all uncertainty is banished, a world in which everything is clear and obvious. Afterward, the entire experience is summarized in the starkly unambiguous vocabulary of numbers exact to the third decimal point. You get that? So your batting average is calculated out to three decimal places. Everything about baseball is defined. There's, there's no ambiguity. There's no guesswork. It's, it's clear. You know what the rules are. You know what the boundaries are. You know exactly what happens on the field. The stats are what they are. And there's no, and there's no guessing. And Peterson beautifully puts that idea, that mental image of all this order and discipline and lack of chaos up against what happens in the world when you go home from the baseball stadium. And here's what he says about that. The world to which I return when the game is over contains all the elements that were visible in the stadium, elegance and sloppiness, grace and unruliness, victory and defeat, diversity and unity, reward and punishment, boundary and risk, intolerance and excellence. But with a significant difference, instead of being sharply distinguished, they are hopelessly muddled. 
What's going on at any particular time is almost never exactly clear. None of the lines are precise. The boundaries are not clear. Goals are not agreed upon. Means are in constant dispute. When I leave the world of brightly lit geometric patterns, I pick my way through ink blots, trying to discern the significance of the shapes with all the help from Rorschach that I can get. My digital wristwatch, for all its technological accuracy, never tells me whether I'm at the beginning or in the middle or near the end of an experience. At the end of the day or the week or the year, there's no agreement on who has won and who has lost. You see the difference? So he's contrasting the order and symmetry and precision of baseball with the muddled reality that we have to live in all the time. Now hold that thought for a minute. I want to tell you my personal Bible time in the last few days. I've been calculating. We've talked about it on the podcast before because Tata used to have one of these Tataisms. And by the way, if you're new to the podcast, and I think there are many, many new people because in the last five days we have several hundred new subscribers to the self-brain surgery newsletter from Substack, which probably means that there's a bunch of new people listening to the podcast. So if you're new around here, you're going to hear me talk about Lisa, my wife, a lot, my two German short-haired pointers, Harvey and Lewis, a lot. The super pups, we call them. And you'll hear me talk about a guy named Tata. Dennis McDonald is my father-in-law, Lisa's dad. And everybody calls him Tata since our son Josh, when he was a little boy, couldn't say Papa. Like Everybody thinks they're going to pick out their grandparent names. But the kid, the oldest grandchild, actually picks out the grandchild name. So when Lisa was raising Josh, when he was a little tiny guy, he couldn't say Papa, and it came out Tata. And that just stuck. And it's stuck. Everybody, grown-ups, call Tata Tata. When you meet him, you call him Tata. So every Tuesday on the podcast, almost every Tuesday, we have a little time of, of study and conversation with this wise man that we call Tata. So every Tuesday, you can tune in and listen to Tuesdays with Tata. Those are some of the most popular episodes I release every week, Tuesdays with Tata. When Tata has these sayings that he that he says all the time and we call them tataisms beth maxi a listener from tulsa shout out to tulsa um wrote recently that uh, she wanted it to cover more tataisms on the podcast so we've been doing that a little bit here and there with sprinkle them in and i'll ask tata hey what does it mean when you say don't put the big pot in the little one or or don't do this or do that and one thing that tata always says and we talked about it a while back on the show is don't go down to egypt for chariots and horses and when, I, when he always used to say that i never knew what he meant until i started looking tata's one of those guys that if he says something you can pretty much bet it's like a string sticking out of your sweater and if you start pulling on it pretty soon the whole thing will unravel and you'll figure out what happened and when tata says something it's usually got some sort of either either long-standing wisdom attached to it or a biblical truth attached to it at the at the bottom and so if you pull on that string long enough you'll find your way to something that matters and that turns out to be from scripture so again we talked about this in the podcast before but i just want to cover the ground really quickly the, the all through the bible there are multiple times when people thought they needed to go when god was telling them to go here they instead wanted to go to egypt egypt over and over shows up in the bible and peterson's going to tell us why but it shows up in the bible as a place where they could go and even though they knew they could potentially have problems there the problems were pretty well defined and they knew they would find protection and provision there so they were constantly drawn to the gravity of the comfort of knowing what was available in egypt and so let's just look at it. Uh, it's even deeper than I thought when I really studied it. I thought it was just a couple of examples, but it turns out to be six or seven. 
starting in eight with Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God has called Abraham to go. And he's going to take you out and build a nation out of you. I'm going to give you that your descendants will be bigger, numbered more than the sands on the seashore. And Abraham finds himself scared. There's all these kings around him that are wanting to fight and have warfare. And he decides to go to Egypt because he can make an alliance down there. Maybe he can he can borrow some of their political capital and safety. And that's the first time he tells a lie. He's worried because Sarah's beautiful. He's worried that the king will kill him and take his wife. So he tells them that Sarah is his sister. He actually does this twice over the years. But in Genesis twelve ten through 20 is the story of the first time that Abraham uses Egypt for comfort, including lying about his wife. So he was seeking provision and safety from Egypt. Now, later... They after Joseph and the whole story of the famine and all those things in Genesis, they've been enslaved in Egypt now for 400 years, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants. And they've finally been delivered. They've finally been set free. And they're in the, they're in the journey now to the promised land. And they're wandering around forever. And within just a few days, they're starting to ask Moses, why can't we go back? We had, we had cucumbers there. We had melons. We had, we, we knew what we had. They were constantly moaning and murmuring and complaining about what they had. Even though they were slaves, they, they had something there that they could count on instead of being out in the desert wandering around having to wait on God to give them manna or quail or show up in the fire or show up in the cloud and not knowing where they were going. And it became a huge burden to Moses and to God, the stench of this constant complaining about wanting to go back to Egypt. Then once they're finally in the promised land over in Deuteronomy 17, they have a king now. And God warns the king. He says this, Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, this is around 1400 B.C. So Abraham, around 1880 B.C., goes to Egypt for protection. For 400 years in Egypt as slaves, they finally get set free. They're wandering around in the desert. They're begging to go back for comfort and safety and cucumbers and melons and the things that they had, meat, and the things that they had access to in Egypt. Now, 440 or so years later, 480 or so years later, 1400 B.C., God's telling the king, quit telling the people, quit thinking that you can go back and get chariots and horses in Egypt, there's no strength there. I'm your strength. You're not going back that way again. So now we're dealing with 400 years they've had the same problem. Well, then 300 years later, around 1100, King Solomon, the supposedly wisest guy in all of the world's history, right? He seeks protection from Egypt by marrying into Pharaoh's family. That was the beginning of the downfall of Solomon when he, when he married all these foreign wives because that diluted the culture of his people and started bringing in outside influences and ideas that diluted the strength of God's word in their lives around 1100. So first Kings nine sixteen is the first time Solomon marries into the Egyptian bloodline. And then it's not over yet. 200 years after that, Isaiah around 900 BC, Isaiah warns the people. This is where Tata's phrase comes from. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So friend, now we're dealing with 900 years. They've been circling around the same problem. But it's not over yet. 400 years after that is when we get finally to Jeremiah, to Peterson's 
writing around 588 or 586 Jeremiah is dealing with the exiles who after God has taken allowed the Babylonians to plunder the wealth and the and the strong people the smart people the poets and the writers and the doctors and and the temple and all that stuff has been hauled off to Babylon and they've left it just the smoldering uh, bad news bears behind in Jerusalem Jeremiah goes back to Jerusalem and hooks up with these people and they decide you know what we ought to do Instead of staying here and letting God rebuild us like he's promised us, we ought to go back to Egypt and see if they can help us. So the exiles, the ones who are the left behinds, the remnants that Jeremiah stayed with, decide after all this time that the best answer is to go back to Egypt. The best answer is to go back to Egypt. And God's like, are you kidding me, people? 900 years now. You've been, well, actually, from 18 to 500, 1,300 years, they've been circling around the same problem. Now, you and I would look at that, and you would say, what a bunch of morons. Like, God's drawn you out. He's given you a plan. He's led you literally with fire and cloud. He's given you food. He's brought you into the promised land. He's toppled the wall in, in Jericho. He's established your kingdom. You've got all this power and all this this stuff, and you're still being drawn back. And now you've been you've sinned so much that he's taken his blessing from you and allowed the Babylonians to take over. But he's still promised you that he's going to rebuild you. Remember Jeremiah 29, I know I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope in a future. And right after he said that, they're like, no, let's just go back to Egypt, right? And we look at that and we think these guys are idiots. But I'm just here to tell you, friend, there's a lot of gravity in old comforts. There's a lot of power, like a tractor beam, pulling you back towards something in the past that you build up in your mind, which is the whole point of what we talked about yesterday. We sometimes build up the past to be different than it really was. We battled Lee Chong around until he's a shadow of his former self. That's a reference to Steinbeck's novel, Sweet Thursday, where two characters were reminiscing about an old friend, and they basically created a person out of him, out of his memory that wasn't at all accurate and by the way i'm not recommending that you read that a lot of old fiction has stuff in it that doesn't hold up to be culturally acceptable in a new era so the steinbeck had a lot of that sort of period writing that there's some kind of things that would be very offensive to some people now in his novels but but that that memory issue where we're looking back in time and we're batting around you know what was you know what was great about egypt egypt was great because we had cucumbers and melons and we we had a job to do and when we got you know we had homes we had we didn't have to wander around in this desert looking we knew where god was god was up in the pyramid and the and the cat was on the shelf and we had all these idols and we knew exactly where god was we didn't have to follow him around in the cloud and the fire that's what happened they start making the past seem better than it was now, we we do have listeners in Egypt, so please understand, friend, if you're hearing this, this is not a knock on the nation of Egypt, okay? It's just a historical fact that Egypt was a world power and Israel was imprisoned and enslaved by them for a while. And, and so this is a conversation about that historical fact, right? The, the purpose of talking about this today, friend, is that I bet you, I would I would wager that the three things that you were most frustrated about in 2022, two of them, maybe all three of them, were the same things that you were most frustrated about at the end of 2021, I bet. And I bet the three things that you most regret about what you did in the last week were similar to the three things that you most regret 
a week, a year ago, or two years ago, or three years ago. My, my point being that we don't really change. We try, but we don't change unless we change our system. And, we, and, and as we've learned recently through the podcast and the things we've talked about, we don't really ever change unless we learn how to change our appetite. We don't really learn how to stop consuming what the world has to offer until we let Jesus teach us to be hungry and thirsty for different things, for better things. We don't stop wanting to feast at the world's table until we start learning to want to feast at his, right? So the whole point of this conversation, this Mind Change Monday this morning, even though it took me three days to get it done, (laughs) the whole point is this. We have a natural tendency to romanticize the past, even when it was bad. And as Eugene Peterson pointed out, we have a natural tendency to desire the order even of a baseball game, to desire to know what we're getting into, to to be in a place where there are clear rules, to be in a place where the lines are drawn. And unfortunately, we do that now sometimes, even when we're in an abusive situation, even when we're in an addictive situation, even where we are in a situation that's objectively not good for us. We are drawn to go back there because it's so much easier than the fear of freedom. The, the, the chaos of living in this life of faith where we're waiting for the next chapter to be revealed. And Peterson puts it out beautifully. He talks about why was Egypt so attractive to the Israelites. And here's what it is. Here's what he said. When the Israelites got tired of living by faith, they went 250 miles southwest to Egypt where everything was clear and precise. And they took Jeremiah with them. This is the, the end of Jeremiah. They drag him back to, to um, Egypt with them. And he says, all of life... All his life, Jeremiah had preached a faith that was intensely personal. Egypt organized a religion that was impersonally bureaucratic. Listen, here's what Egypt offered. The Egypt alternative to faith asserted itself over and over again. And we already covered this ground when Abraham went there, when the kings wanted to go there for chariots and horses, when Isaiah warned the people about wanting to go there, all of that. And there's reasons why. Here's why. It was not without precedent, not without precedent, Peterson says, that Israel in the enormous confusion and muddle following the fall of Jerusalem in 586 would succumb to the age-old attraction of Egypt. There's nothing more difficult than to live spontaneously, hopefully, virtuously, by faith. There's nothing more difficult than that. Living by faith is hard because you don't know what you're going to get. You're not sure what's going to happen. You're you're unclear what the circumstances are. In fact, you can be sure that there's going to be a massive thing. There's going to be some problem that faith is going to require you to go through, to walk through the pit of despair at times. And Peterson wrote, out of this traumatic dislocation, Jeremiah told the people to set aside their fears and begin a new life of faith. But it was easier for them to go to Egypt. There's tremendous gravity, friend, in old comforts. So they went to Egypt because in Egypt there were no uncertainties, no loose ends, no ambiguity. Every detail in this life and even in the afterlife, and according to the Egyptian theology at the time, was accounted for. Peterson says Egypt was clear geographically. They knew exactly where it was. There was a Nile River. There was a, there was clear borders, Right. Egypt was clear architecturally. It had pyramids and temples that stood out from the landscape in precise lines like a baseball field. The mathematical exactitude of their construction is still, to this day, a marvel. Nothing was left unexpressed in those monuments. 
They were arranged and plotted the uncertainties of death, the statuary and structures of the temples, resolved the ambiguities of life. Egypt was clear, Peterson wrote, theologically. The unseen was translated into the seen. All the gods were made into images. Everything that might have been more than human was reduced to what was less than human. The cat, the hawk, the hyena, the bull, the ibis, these god images of the Egyptians. Every image was stylized, and those stylized images eliminated all wonder. Spontaneity in their religion was unheard of. It was a religion of absolute control. All reality was rendered in the flat surface of stone. So they didn't have to wonder what they were getting in Egypt. It was clear. It was even clear socially. Everybody's place was defined hierarchically. The king was at the apex. The slave was at the, slave was at the bottom. And everybody else was in between. The diminishment of people was compensated for by the clarity of knowing where they stood, Peterson wrote. If there was less honor, there was also less responsibility. And if there was less to hope for, there was also less to have to deal with. See, that's the difference in our life and faith in Christ is it doesn't matter your social position. You are, you're a saint. You're a, you're a member of the king's table. You get to sit at his table because you're in his family. And so there's no getting off the hook of your responsibility in the kingdom of God. Even if you're a person of low means or low, low ability or low stature, you're still got a seat at the table. Egypt isn't like that in this metaphor here. He says Egypt was the memorial stadium of the ancient world, clean boundaries, set rules, clear separation between the players and everybody else. Listen, I just brought this up today. I just brought it up to say it's natural and it's normal. And we can look at our own lives and we get frustrated about when we can't seem to make changes. And it's because we're built with this eye in the past. And one of the things we have to learn, if we're going to change our minds and change our lives... Is to let faith keep us from turning our heads back around. That's why we spent so much time talking in November and December about Isaiah 43. Forget the former things God said. I'm doing a new thing. And faith is what's required for you to see it. See, here's the thing. The Egyptians and the the Israelites, that's a great story uh, showing us that nothing really has ever changed in the human condition, right? I wrote at the end of my book, I've seen the interview, I wrote a chapter about my eyes and how I was having trouble with the optometrist getting the right prescription. And my eyes were, were, were not clear. And he finally put a prism in my lens. It turned out later another ophthalmologist, an ophthalmologist figured out that it wasn't, that I really didn't need a prism. He just, there was sort of a shortcut putting the prism in there. And they, they got it fixed and my eyes were better now because of the proper prescription. But the prism did work though. And what happened is as soon as he flipped into position, the letters became clear. And I realized my eyes were always seeing and the letters were always what they were. I needed a filter in between them to show me what the realities of those letters were. The letters didn't change because of the prism. I just became aware of them and able to see them more clearly because of the prism. And so that's the that's the thing about faith. Faith is that lens in our eyes that lets us see when it's hard, when things are difficult, when the circumstances aren't stacking up in our way, when Jesus' John sixteen thirty three promise comes true that the world is hard, when the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy and it's hard. Faith is the reason we can see through that, to know that there's still a reason to have hope, to keep taking those steps, to stop looking back. If you're in an abusive situation and you're trying to break free from that, there's all those comforts in that. You you know he's going to hurt you. You know they're going to do it again. But there's comfort because you, you at least know what to expect, and it's not as scary as what's out there in the unknown. 
right? If you are covering up your problems with alcohol or gambling or something else every night or turning the TV on or whatever, it, it, you, at least you know. You don't want to deal with that. You don't want to feel that way tomorrow. But tonight it's hard and you're suffering and you can't stop thinking about that thing or that problem or, or worrying about the thing that's coming. So you choose to go down that path again of numbing it up and covering it. Because you know what you're going to get with that. You're going to fall asleep and not have to think about it right now. And you forget, you trick yourself that you're going to have to deal with it anyway tomorrow. And that's the problem with going back to Egypt. Yeah, you get the cucumbers and the melons, but you also get the whips and the chains, right? So the, the whole point of this Mind Change Monday is that we can't change our life until we change our mind. And we can't stop going back until we learn to love what's in the future more. To love God's plan and God's purpose and God's plan and God's promises more than we love the comfort and the lines and the boundaries and the gravity of our old comforts. That's the whole thing today, friend. This is not a perfectly formed, wrapped up podcast because all of us are going to keep doing this. It's, it's too ingrained in us. We're going to keep wanting to go back and recover that same ground and walk around for 40 years on a journey that should have taken us 11 days. But the difference is, this year, we're stepping in. We're going to do the years of, the year of the Lord's favor. We're going to forget the former things. And we're going to try it. And we're going to find out what happens if we let God keep his promises. Because we, my friends, are going to start today. I'm going to play this song, I Speak Jesus. It's a great way to just kind of step into today. That what are we going to do when we face these problems? Are we going to go back onto that baseball field of something in the past that's so powerful and, and drawing us back? Or are we going to just learn how to speak Jesus into this problem and into this moment and let that prism snap into place so we can finally see what's really out there? Because we want to change our minds and we want to change our lives. And the good news is we can start today.
Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.